But we're going to be starting a new series today. It's our Advent series. We do this every year. And uh, this year, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to look at one passage of Scripture from different angles over the next month. So uh, the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at is Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at three verses in there, ch- uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, if you want to turn there. It'll also be on the screens behind me. And uh, Galatians really talks about the meaning of Advent, this season that we're celebrating as a church. So today is going to be the first part of looking at the truths in this passage. So I'm just going to read these three verses, and then uh, we'll look at the very first verse and dive into that. So this is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray before we dive into the Word. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your Word, that it would come with clarity, that we would be transformed by it. And we confess that we are completely dependent upon your grace to do this. So we ask that your Spirit would help us to understand the height, depth, breadth, and width of the love of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. Help us to see that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of nice, just three verses after like six months of reading five paragraphs at a time of Genesis. It's kind of a nice little uh, relief. But in these three verses, there's so much truth packed into them. And we're just going to look again at the very first little section. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. God sent his son. And when we talk about the season of Advent, this time when the church is looking forward to Christmas, we're talking about the word Advent, it it means arrival. It's the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world. And so Advent is a season that is marked by hopeful waiting. That's what anticipation is. It's a hopeful waiting And one of the things that's so true about human nature is what we wait for, what we're willing to wait for, reveals a lot about what we find hope in and who we trust. I remember one of my friends in college, he he grew up with a distant father. He didn't really know his father that well. And then once his father reconnected back with him, he would promise to take him when he was a teenager. He would promise to pick him up and they go to the park or go to a ball game or something like that. But he, he, he would mention the pain of sitting on the front steps of his home, waiting for his dad to pick him up, and realizing he wasn't coming. No one was coming. And there was a, a great sense of loss and shame that he felt. He realized his dad was not worth waiting for. 
So it reveals a lot about who we trust and the trustworthiness of the person's that we believe when they give us a promise, when they say that they're going to do something. And we know the pain of when those promises don't come to pass. But what Galatians 4, 4-7 through teaches us, and what the season of Advent reminds us of, is that God keeps His promises. That God shows up. That God does what He says and fulfills all that he promises to his people. And that's why that phrase in the beginning, when the fullness of time had come, is so important. God shows up at the right time, at the perfect time. But for something to show up at the fullness of time, for something to show up at the climax, it assumes that there was a period of time before that was an anticipation, that there was a build-up, that there's a main act and then there's an opening act that's leading up to that, op- that, 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 that final act, that climax. Something is building anticipation. And what we see and what we're going to look at today is how Jesus Christ fulfills key promises in the Old Testament. That God has been laying the groundwork so that when the Son of God appears... It's not something random, it's not something abstract that just shows up out of nowhere, but it is the culmination and the wrap-up and the making good on a story and a narrative that has been been unfolding since Genesis chapter 1. In the fullness of time, God makes good on all of the promises he has made to his people. And in Jesus Christ, we find someone worth the wait And my goal is that we would grow in our anticipation of Christmas by stepping into that same understanding of what God's people were longing for for so long, through all kinds of trials, through all kinds of difficulties in their life, and the relief and the joy that they must have felt and that we ought to feel when we realize that God has sent His Son to fulfill everything that He's promised. And there's three fulfillments I want to particularly look at today. So we're going to be jumping around in a couple passages in the New Testament, and we're going to get a Holy Spirit-inspired Bible commentary on the Old Testament. That's what the New Testament is. The Holy Spirit teaches us this is how Jesus fulfills all of these loose ends in the Old Testament. And we're going to see how Jesus fulfills three promises. First, Jesus fulfills God's promise of a prophet. And second, Jesus fulfills God's promise of a priest. And finally, Jesus fulfills God's promise of a king. Prophet, priest, and king. So let's look first at how God fulfills his promise to his people for a prophet in Christ. So turn with me to Acts chapter 3. It's also going to show up on the screens above me. Acts chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 19 to 24. And in Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter is preaching to a crowd. This is right after Pentecost. This is after the church has been, uh, the Spirit has been poured onto the church and the mission of God is going forward to the nations. And Peter is preaching about the risen Christ. And what he does is, he basically has a Bible study with his crowd. They're all Jewish people, and he opens up the Old Testament, and he points to Deuteronomy 18, to 
to a prophecy that Moses gave, which he says is about Jesus. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So again, Peter does an Old Testament Bible study, goes to these Jewish people, and he opens up the Old Testament. He says, the prophet Moses is prophesying, he's foretelling of a day when a greater prophet will rise up from among the people of Israel, like Moses, but greater, and he's going to speak words of ultimate authority. That everyone who hears, they need to listen to those prophetic words. And then he says, Moses is talking about Jesus. Moses is speaking about Jesus. Now Moses, if you remember back in Exodus, Moses is the guy that God sends to bring the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And Moses serves as God's mouthpiece to God's people. Right? He goes up to Mount Sinai, comes down with the law, he comes down revealing to them God's covenant, God's requirements for his people, and he speaks as God's mouthpiece, as God's uh, vessel of delivering his messages. And he goes up to Israel and he says, I have set before you today, by these words, I've set before you today life and death. You obey God, you will experience life. You disobey him, you will face death and judgment. These words are put before you, and those are the only two options. Obey God and live, sin and die. And the, the goal of a prophet, if you read Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, all the minor prophets, their main goal was moral reformation. That was their message. They would go to God's sinful people, who are just like us, they're sinful, and he would come with revelation from God to bring them back into conformity with God's law, God's commands. And Jesus follows in that tradition. Like the prophets, Jesus comes, and he doesn't say, he says, I, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to undo or wipe away the Old Testament, but to bring the Old Testament to its conclusion. And he comes, and Jesus makes moral claims on the life of the people that he preaches to. The Beatitudes, the, all, all the times when he says, you've heard it said, but I say. He actually brings about God's moral order and pushes it deeper into the hearts of his people. He comes in line with the prophets, and he also corrects the false religious ideas of the people of his time. But unlike the prophets before him, Jesus is not just some spokesperson for God, but he is God himself. He is God in the flesh. He speaks with the authority of God because he himself is the one true God. And he 
sets before us words of life and death. That's what Peter is saying. Right? He says, what happens when this prophet that was promised in the Old Testament shows up? He's going to speak words to you, and you have to listen. And if you don't, you'll be cut off. You'll be destroyed. He has set before us, Jesus Christ, as a prophet, sets before us life or death. Are you going to follow me or not? If you follow me, deny yourself, you will live. If you trust in me, you will live. If you deny me, you will die. He's following in that great prophetic tradition. And when we think about prophets and we think about divine guidance, and you know, th- this is something that I think everybody in some respect is searching for. You think about it just in, in, in our culture in general. People are kind of a, a complex mixture, a mixture of these two desires. On, on the one hand, we want to hear from God. We want guidance. We have this sense that we don't really know how to do life. We don't know how to deal with the things going on in ourselves and in the world, and we want a voice from outside of ourselves to help us, help us figure this out, tell me what the truth is. That's why we flock to spiritual gurus and, and celebrities and, and, and you know, blog to blog. We're, we just want someone to tell us what's going on. So that's one impulse. We want to hear a word from God. Give me a Tell me, I want to hear the divine. On the other hand, we're extremely resistant to anything that we don't want to hear. So we want to hear the truth, we want something beyond ourselves to speak to us, but we want that voice also to affirm what we already believe. We don't want that thing to challenge us, to disrupt our lives. And we treat spirituality like a like one of those magic eight balls. You know, those, you ask a question and it gives you an answer. And what do you do? If you don't like the answer, you just shake it and wait for another answer, right? So we go from different, again, fad to fad. We just shake it, shake it until we get an answer that works for us. And we call that our spirituality. But what Peter is saying and what God is speaking is that he's not going to give us the answers that we want. And it, it's got to humble. What if, we don't, what if we're not as smart as we think we are? The great uh, preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, as a preacher, he never lets the patient prescribe the medicine. And we're the patients. Christ is the physician. We don't, we don't tell him what's wrong with us. And we don't tell him how to fix us. That's his job. He tells us that we're sinners. That's our problem. We're cut off from God. That's our problem. We deny the truth. That's our problem. And that tendency doesn't go away when you become a Christian. I mean, we all, I mean we're all still sinners. We, we, we deal with that, those last remaining strongholds of resistance. We play magic eight ball with the word of God. These are the words of God. And then we see them and we go, I don't really like that. Wives, submit to your husbands. Nah, I'm going to shake that. Say something else. Right? You cannot serve or love God and money. Shake that. No, I don't want that. Right? This is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual morality. You chuck that thing out the window. You're like, that thing's defective. It's broken. But we do that. And whatever thing you want to shake away, you go through the Bible, you see what God commands us. Whatever one you want to shake away, that's exactly the point at which you must submit. 
That's the tension point. That's where God is pointing you towards. That's the place where you think, and we all think, we're wiser than God. Right there. What do you want to shake away? What words do you wish just weren't there? That's where God often does the most profound and transformative work. And there's a, it's just a fundamental, basic Christian idea. Do you think if God commands something and he's good, is he, gonna, is he ever going to command you, ever, to, to do something that's not for your ultimate good? Is he not wise? Is he not gracious? Does he not care about your life? So what could he, why would he ever command you to do something that isn't full of wisdom, that isn't good and right and true and, and beautiful? And that's a lie as old as the garden, right? Satan goes to Eve and says, did God really say? And then he goes, you know, what? you know why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree? You know why I gave you that command? He's holding out on you. He doesn't really have your best interests in mind because he knows if you eat of it, you're going to be like him. And God doesn't want that. And she misses the fact that God has provided everything for her and Adam. All the trees, a, a garden full of yeses and one no. Just one no, but a garden full of yeses. Any tree, the gracious abundance of God and the kindness of God. But our sin and our pride wants to shake the eight ball, does not want to submit. And listen to what God says. I mean, Peter goes to this people and he goes, look, God promises if you repent, if you change your mind, if you turn away from your sin, if you start believing and living the word of God, there's going to be times of refreshment and restoration and blessing. There's an abundance of goodness God wants to give to us. And so when Christ says, do you want to follow me or not? He's, again, it's life or death. There are no neutral encounters. To not decide is to decide. To not decide is to say, I have the option of ignoring what you say, God. And we don't get that option. You look at the way Jesus speaks to people in the Gospels. It's a binary choice. Are you with me or not? And that same prophetic word is here. And the call is to choose life. Follow him. Trust him. Believe what Christ, God's promised prophet, says. He's not only a prophet, but he's also God's promised priest. That's the second promise God fulfills in Christ. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 7. I'm just going to look at a couple verses here. Hebrews 7, verses 23 to 25. And what we're going to see in Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 is God is teaching us, he's, making a, a, he's teaching us a lesson through comparison. He's going to look at the Old Testament priests and what was wrong with them, and then he's going to show us how Jesus Christ as the New Testament great priest fixes everything that was wrong with the Old Testament priests. He's the greater priest. This is Hebrews chapter 7, 23-25. The former priests were many in number 
because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we, we get a little lesson on the Old Testament priests, right? God gives the nation of Israel a priesthood, and they were set-apart people, and their job was to represent the people before God through sacrifices and offerings and rituals. And then they would represent God to the people. They were mediators. They were go-betweens between the people and God. And, and through their work, people could draw near to God. That was their purpose. But Israel's priests were flawed in two very significant ways. And we see that in Hebrews 7. One, they were sinners themselves. In other parts of Hebrews, he talks about that. When the high priest offers a sacrifice, he's got his own issues he has to deal with. Right? He has to sacrifice animals for his own sin. So he's a sinner, and that's, his, that's the first flaw of the Old Testament priesthood. Second, they all die. They die. So you could be living in Israel, and your local priest is a great dude, uh, but he's not perfect, and so you know, he's got his own issues he has to deal with. But on top of that, even if he is a really upstanding guy, his term is limited by his lifespan. So these priests keep dying. These people that stand between man and God keep passing away. And it shows that this can't be a permanent system. This is pointing forward towards a greater priest who does not sin and therefore can take, of other, can take care of other people's sins and who doesn't die. So he can always stand and represent God's people in perfect holiness. That people can always draw near to God through him. That the access to God will always be open. And that's why the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who can save us to the uttermost. That always through him we can draw near to God because he always lives to intercede for us. He always lives as our advocate. He always lives as our go-between, our mediator. And so our status before the Father is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, spotlessness because we're in Christ. And this means that Jesus' work didn't end 2,000 years ago when he died and was raised, but his work continues on every single day of your life as your priest, as the one who stands for you and represents you. That's his current work of ministry. And not only is he our perfect priest, but he's also our perfect sacrifice. Right? The Old Testament system, if you read through all those long chapters in Leviticus, all these sacrifices, all, all, all this blood sprinkled everywhere, one of the flaws of the Old Testament animal sacrifice system is you kept having to kill animals. Right? If animal sacrifices were enough, you just kill one goat and we're good. And the author of Hebrews is like, why do we keep killing goats? Why is there a sacrifice day after day and year after year? Because they're all pointing towards a great sacrifice. Those animals do not forgive sin. They're simply 
markers toward the one bloody sacrifice that will permanently, finally, and sufficiently deal with our guilt and our sin that will cover all of it. Now, when we talk about sacrifice and priests and blood and all these things, it all seems, I mean, to a modern mind, we, we were just like, that's so primitive. What are you talking about? It's so strange and, and alien. But we can't escape the reality of sin. We can't escape that we have this fundamental need to have our consciences comforted. We want absolution. We want release. And we're either going to deal with sin by actually dealing with it, finding a way of atonement, or we're going to minimize it so it's no big deal. But in both cases, we're still looking for that gnawing anxiety in our conscience to be put to rest. So we either deal with it or we just go, it's not as big of a deal as we think it is. And what's interesting is our... I remember hearing a pastor talk about this. He said our, our modern priests are oftentimes stand-up comedians. And I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea. And I, and I was thinking about it. And what's, you know, what, what are, the best comedians do what? They tell the truth. They tell the truth. And it's interesting how so many comedians struggle with deep depression. I think Woody Allen said that all comedy is just tragedy plus time. It's dealing with and telling the truth about the darkest corners of our human nature and the most despairing aspects of life. And the great release is you make a joke of it. You laugh. I don't think it's, I, I love comedy. I don't think laughing is wrong. I think we should find joy and entertainment and relaxation in it. But we should not look to them as a way to absolve us of the realities of sin. You think about that, if they tell a joke, and what do we do? We go, oh, that's, that's, it, it could be something so true about the darkness of human nature. And we laugh. Why? Because we go, that's so true. And then we laugh and we figure, we're fine. Now we're okay. We laughed about it. It's not a big deal. And you see everyone else laughing, and you're like, oh, it's other people deal with this too. And we leave and we go, we've been absolved. It's fine. We're okay. We're okay. But are we okay? It can give you a momentary release, but it can't actually deal with the problem of guilt. It can't actually atone. People say, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I laugh to keep from crying. And I think it might also be said that we laugh to keep from confessing, to keep from looking in the mirror and honestly recognizing that we will give an account that our lives and our sin is not something you can sanitize or package away or make disappear. It sticks. It's there. And in Christ, as sacrifice and priest, we find the two things that we need. We need to see that our sin, in all of its darkness, in all of its bare-boned, vicious reality is dealt with properly. But we also need to see an abundant compassion and love so that we can deal with 
and receive freedom and forgiveness. We need to see justice properly executed, but we also need to see mercy overflowing for those who have sinned. And we find that in Christ. He's a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. He doesn't minimize our sin because he offers up himself as the perfect sacrifice. The blood and the devastation and the, and the, and the, the reality of what that meant for him to be crucified for sinners shows the horror of our sin, but, but his role as priest to ever intercedes for us shows the, the, the compassion and the care and the patience of God, that he is your priest on your worst day, your absolute worst day. He stands as your perfect priest, and joyfully so. Joyfully so, he stands as our advocate. And I'm, when I say worst days, I'm, it, like, our, on the totem pole of things we're dealing with sin-wise, it's like swearing too much, time management, that's like very minor. When we talk about we're sinners, we're, 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 I'm like, for real, we do terrible things to each other. We think terrible things. We're fallen. We're faithless. These are all realities of our life. But we look at the priesthood of Christ, and it gives us the space to come clean, to confess it all right down to the grimy bottom right down to the depths of all of the, the, the sin in our heart, we can lift it up to God and say, Lord, only the blood of Christ can deal with this. The, 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 the relief, the, 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 the payment, the, the absolvement of this reality in my own soul can only be dealt with outside of myself. Take it. And the great priest takes it and he bears it, and he deals with it. He deals with it. The sacrifice, it's done, it's final. He casts it off. And that's, that's what we need. The great compassion of God as our great high priest. Always living to intercede for us. Never dying, never failing. Always and forever perfectly representing us giving us perfect access to God. So he's the promised prophet, he's the promised priest, and finally he's the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see how the birth of Christ fulfills a prophecy from the prophet Micah of a ruler that's going to be born in Bethlehem in the line of David. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2, just the first six verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So the prophet Micah, centuries before the birth of Christ, says 
from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, the place where David was born, in the line of David, there will be a king, a ruler. And that's significant. If you're a Jewish person, you're listening to this, the king is God's means of ruling earth and and conforming earth to as well as it is in heaven. That's the Lord's prayer. Lord, make your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. And the way God does that is through an earthly king. He extends his reign on earth through an earthly king. And that king, Matthew tells us, is this little baby boy. Jesus, the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's not like he was born to Mary and Joseph Christ. He's their son. Christ is a title. Christ is a royal title. It means anointed one. It's loaded with theological significance. He is the anointed one. Jesus, the Christ, the royal ruler. And that means that to to proclaim Jesus Christ to proclaim Jesus as the anointed one, as the king, as the ruler, it is a political statement. You, it is a, it's a public declaration. You cannot avoid it. It's right there in his name and title. So when we say that Jesus is king, this is not, we're not like trying to get people to believe so that one day Jesus will be elected king. If we get enough Christians in, maybe the world will elect him as king. No, the message is Jesus is king, You need to get with the program. And you will either bow in submission joyfully or you will bow in fear and trembling. Jesus is the king that God has promised. And what happens as soon as the Christ is announced? What happens? Herod, a king, is threatened. If Jesus is king, Caesar is not. If Jesus is king, Herod is not. If Jesus is king, then anyone who tries to claim that ultimate authority becomes his enemy. That's why Herod orders a mass genocide of children because he's terrified. He knows the political ramifications of this Christ. But it's amazing how his power is veiled. This king comes in humility. He comes in, 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 his power is veiled but it's power nonetheless. It's, if you read in Luke chapter 2, the shepherds, they're heading on their way to see baby Jesus. And they see this vision. These angels open up heaven and they see God's heavenly host praising God for the birth of Christ. Heavenly host means, the idea of host is, is, is a heavenly army. God's armies are displayed. It's not like a bunch of butlers with hors d'oeuvres. You know, his heavenly host. It's like, th- th- these are people with weapons and chariots. This is the, the, the heavenly armies of God are praising God because the king is born. This is the rightful heir, not just of Israel, but the entire world. All the nations will bow to this king. So Christ comes to establish a kingdom, right? The government will be on his shoulders. He will bring an administration, a new order, And the resurrection of Christ is the inauguration of that rule. If you think about presidents, there's Inauguration Day on January 20th. A president comes in, and he brings in an administration. But the policies of of that administration take time to roll out. And that's the way the inauguration of Christ works. He's 
now resurrected at the right hand of the Father, and he's the king of the world, and his policies are being rolled out progressively throughout human history. Slowly, with ups and downs, but God is establishing on this earth his rule. And that means we're citizens of that kingdom. Right? We're citizens of heaven. We, our allegiance belongs to Christ. And that doesn't mean that we don't have national allegiances or allegiances to local realities, but it means that all of those are now infused with new meaning. Our work, our homes, our schools, they're, they're, in, they're, they're ordinary and they're part of our life, the life that God gives us, but they're infused with a new vitality and life. They're transfigured. Think about, think about the life, like how did Jesus, for most of his life, extend the kingdom of God? How did he serve the Father? He grew up and listened to his parents. He listened to scripture every Sabbath at temple. And he cut wood and made chairs for a really long time. That was his life. And then, when he started his ministry, he did it with 12 blue-collar dudes. Some of them catch fish for a living. And a bunch of poor women. And he did miracles and, and, and spectacular sights for sure, but the majority of his years of ministry were doing what? Walking for a long time, talking, eating, and praying. That's the majority of his life. And, and the amount of followers that he had would probably maybe be the size of an average church today, maybe. It's ordinary. But it was extraordinary because he recognized that God works through the humble, through the ordinary, through the things that the world calls foolish. And God purposes that foolishness to shame the wisdom of the wise. Ordinary life. That's the kingdom life. And you are, in your homes, you're a kingdom outpost. This church is a kingdom outpost. In this time, in this place, in your job, in your life, as you're trying to teach your kids the Bible, and maybe they listen 5% of the time, whatever you're doing, all the struggles in life, it's ordinary, it's mundane, but it's glorious. And it is how God has worked through the majority of people throughout Christian, Christianity's history to bit by bit, like a mustard seed slowly growing, extend the borders of his kingdom. So your life is ordinary, but it's not purposeless. It's not meaningless. You belong to God's kingdom. and He's working in your life. In the most mundane, ordinary pieces of your life, there's glory. How do I know this? Because Jesus tells us in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am, what? Sending you sending you. God sends Christ in the world to be our prophet, priest, and king, and now God sends us into the world. And what, what does God call us? Right? He says we have the prophetic word. That's what Second Peter says. We have the word of God to speak to the world. He's a prophetic witness of the church. And then God calls us a royal priesthood. 
We're a priest. We're the priesthood of God. We represent God to the world in our spheres of influence, in our everyday lives. And we're ambassadors of the king. We're ministers of the new covenant. We go as emissaries of the king to the world, to the nations, to our neighborhoods, and we say, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. So you want to tell people the meaning of Christmas. Be sent into the the lives of your neighbors. Be sent into your communities. Because it doesn't just end with us receiving the Son. It doesn't just end with Christ being sent, but Christ is sent to send us. That's the propulsive power of what Christmas means. And maybe, maybe, In a couple weeks, you'll be sitting around with your family over a meal. And they'll talk about the world. Everything's going crazy. And they'll talk about the dysfunction in their lives and the lives around us. And they're going to wonder, in this tragic world, with all of this complexity and all of this difficulty and all of this sin and the stuff we're dealing with in our own lives, with all this madness, why doesn't God do anything? Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you said that yourself? It's a, it's a common question. Why doesn't God act? He sees what's going on in this world. And you can tell them he did do something. He came. He did do something. And he did it in the fullness of time quietest of nights, the most unlikely of places, in the arms of this teenage girl in the middle of nowhere, God sends a son, gives us hope. That's what we celebrate. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would grow our rejoicing and our gratitude for the fact that Christ has come and also increase our longing and our hope in the fact that Christ will return. That the work is not fully finished and we look forward to that day when everything on earth will be done as it is in heaven. We acknowledge now we live in that tension. There are so many perplexing things in our lives. There's so many knots that we can't untangle. And we confess that we are weak and that we really do need your grace and your kindness to be poured out on us. Fill our hearts by your spirit with the love of Christ. Help us to embrace Advent for all it means and signifies for us. Lord, awaken our hearts to hope. Don't let us be numb. Do a work in our hearts that when we hear about Christ, it gives life to our singing, life to our prayers, life to our obedience. We are completely at your mercy. And we ask that you would do as you have promised that you would enlighten our hearts to know the hope to which we have been called. We ask all this in Jesus' name.
recommend.